Our scripture lessons today, 1 Kings 21, 1 through 16. I don't know how familiar you are with this passage. But it's a passage that really speaks to our theme, how can God let wickedness triumph? Listen here to God's Word. Now it came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house, and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place, if you like. I will give you the price of it in money, if you like. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab came into his house, sullen and vexed, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. But Jezebel his wife came in to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? So he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, Or else, if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she, Jezebel, wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent them to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letters, saying, Proclaim a fast, and seat Naboth at the head of the people, and seat two worthless men before him, and let them testify against him, saying, You cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. What an intricate plot, huh? Not very intricate at all, quite straightforward. So the men of his city, the elders and the nobles, who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then the two worthless men came in and sat before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside of the city and stoned him to death with stones." Then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Amen. A real encouraging story, huh? Well, it happens. Acts chapter 7 is where we turn for our our next passage from the New Testament. Acts chapter 7, we'll begin at verse 54 and read through chapter 8, verse 3. 
This, I suspect, is more familiar to us. This is uh, the end of, of Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin and their response to him and the consequences of that. Uh, we'll see that again, uh, bad things happen to good people. Listen here to God's word. Now when they, that is the Sanhedrin, heard this, that is all of Stephen's uh, declamation, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep, that is, he died. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Amen. Again, not a particularly encouraging story, account. Back to Revelation chapter 2. We want to read verses 8 through 11 today. This is the letter of Jesus that he sends to a particular church there in Asia Minor in Turkey. We call it today. It's to the church at Smyrna, the church in Smyrna, we should say. Uh, he has a word for them. Listen here to God's word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Amen. We'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's Word, which we've read. Heavenly Father, we come in Jesus' name to you to ask you to open our hearts and our minds, our lives to your word, which we've heard read. Uh, Lord, we want to understand that, know what you speak to us in that. So come, we pray. Glorify yourself. Bless us by helping us understand your word. We pray through Christ our Savior, the Lord of all. Amen. Last week I mentioned that these seven letters of Jesus to specific churches in Asia Minor uh, each have 
five sort of commonalities. So if you project those up on the, on the screen here, that would be good. Uh, that's from last week. Some people complained that I took them down too quick, that you didn't have time to note them. We're going to work. I thought what we do this week is we work through this letter to the church at Smyrna using these five common traits. Uh, and notice that it's the church in Smyrna. We mentioned last week that uh, it's not the church at Smyrna, but in it. They live in the life there. They're, they're part of the, the community. They're, they're in, enmeshed therein. And so we need to understand that such is the case. So the first mark is that Jesus identifies himself in a particular way. So there we go. Uh, and in this case, he does a couple of things. He has two things. The first one is that he's the first and the last. That's what he says. I am the first and I am the last. Why does he say that? What, what would the church at Smyrna hear from that? Well, it's a clear assertion, assertion of deity. We read two weeks ago in Isaiah 44, 6, where God says, I am the first and I am the last. So Jesus here is making a clear assertion of full deity, that he's, he's part of God. Uh, I suspect this is the type of text that would have been used uh, at the Council of Nicaea against the Arians, who didn't think that Jesus was fully God, like God the Father. But here Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Very clear declaration of his, his divinity of being the same substance with the Father. Uh, we need to be grounded in that. There are still many people today who reject the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, uh, well, we won't, that's a rabbit trail. We talk a lot about that, uh, people who've done that and who, who still do it today. But be grounded in the fact that Jesus is fully God. He's one with the Father. The second thing that he asserts is that he was dead. Here it comes. He was dead and has come to life. Uh, Jesus really did suffer. We sing about it this morning. He really did suffer. Sometimes we forget that. We, we, it's all in our mind as an idea, but he really suffered. He bled and he died. Uh, he did that. Uh, he has walked the road of suffering, of unjust tyranny over him by others, by being wrongly cast and, and uh, maligned and all these things said about him. He's experienced that. He suffered. And he did really die. He was buried. Uh, we need to know that such is the case. <clears throat> but, he says, the one who was dead and has come to life. Not that he had fainted away, not that he had been given some kind of a drug, but he had, was really dead and now has been raised to life, never to die again. Now those are, we're, we're used to hearing that, but those are astounding statements. You cannot think of anyone else to whom that applies, the way it does to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, <clears throat> so the point that the Lord Jesus wants to make to the Smyrna church is that I, the one who speak to you, this, this is me, <clears throat> I'm God, I've suffered, I've died, I've been raised again, and you need to know that. Now he knows what's going to come up for them, but he says you need to know that, that suffering's not the end of everything. Suffering is something that people have to go through sometimes, and I did myself. 
And the second thing that I mentioned as a commonality in all these letters is that Jesus always says, I know your, and then he'll, he'll say something. So let's put that up there. I know your, and here he says, I know your situation in detail. In fact, I know your tribulation and poverty is what he says, your tribulation and poverty. Did you know that Smyrna was the first church, or first church, the first city to build a shrine for the worship of the Roman emperor? They did this in like 29 or something like that, and uh, uh, people had to worship to the, the emperor. And if you didn't, there were certain things in Smyrna you could not do, could not participate in, unless you had worshiped at the shrine. Uh, you could not, there were certain guilds or trades and professions you could not be a part of, apart from worshiping at the shrine and offering the, the sacrifice to the emperor. So no participation meant jobs were gone. It meant that social opportunities were limited. And so this tribulation and poverty are real. It's things that people are experienced. It caused social ostracism as well. You were looked down on. You, weren't, you, you were thought, man, those are who would want to be someone like that? The dregs of society. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You can think of uh, how that works in our own contemporary situation. There are CEOs who've lost their position because of things they've said that were politically incorrect. Uh, they're all across our land. There are companies that are enacting uh, policies and procedures that you have to toe a certain line. If you don't bow down to this particular whatever it is, that you are in danger of losing your job or your position, or you can't even get into a certain profession. You realize that you can't be a lawyer in Canada if you don't affirm homosexual marriage. It's required. Otherwise, you, you simply can't be a lawyer in Canada. Uh, so, and of course, we all know that lawyers are stinking rich, right? <laughs> I'm just making a side joke there. Shouldn't do that. Uh, but they, they were experiencing tribulation and poverty because of their faithfulness to Christ. He says also that he knows the blasphemy used against them. So uh, that's the next thing we want to put up there. He says, I know these things. There's blasphemy that's used against you. And he says it comes from the Jewish synagogue. Now, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, I mentioned that the early Christian church received great protection uh, under the Roman Empire because they thought they were Jews. And of all the nations in the world, only the Jews did not have to offer a sacrifice to the emperor because they were so hard-headed. That is, the Jews were, and they'd, they'd won that right. The Christians were considered part of the Jews, and so, uh, by most folks, so they didn't have to do that as well. Well, here, the synagogue, the Jewish community in Smyrna, uh, goes to the officials and say, they're not part of us. They're not part of us. What they say is not true. The stuff that they, they pronounce and the things they preach about is not true. They're, they're not part of us. And so they, the Christians, came under persecution. And uh, bad things happened to them. Now, what's interesting here is this letter's from the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We understand that. Jesus wrote these letters. Uh, he says... Uh, I'm aware that you are, uh, that the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That's pretty harsh language. 
He says, these people, this Jewish synagogue, is really a synagogue of Satan. Now, he doesn't mean that they worship Satan. He doesn't mean that at all. What Jesus is saying is that, you know, the word Satan, what Satan is, is the adversary. They're the ones who pushed back against uh, the notion that Jesus was the Messiah. We saw that in our reading from Acts, that uh, that's what Stephen had said, or yeah, Stephen had asserted as well as he could and showed from scriptures, Jesus is the Messiah. And, the, and then he has the vision, he sees Jesus at the right hand of God. They say, oh, no, 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 no. And they immediately take about and begin to stone him. And so they resist, they, they're, they're, they're not where they should be with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so when Jesus says that they're a synagogue of Satan, uh, that's not an anti-Semitism. Uh, he's not saying that about all Jews because after all, Jesus himself was a Jew. John who wrote these things down was a Jew. All the first apostles were Jews. And uh, that's, you know, so it wasn't the thing against the Jews. Now I think that the fact that it says this here, that this is happening in Smyrna, is one of the indications that this was uh, for an early date for the writing of Revelation. You know, I'm, I'm a minority here, but I think Revelation was written in the late 60s, not in the mid-90s. And by the mid-90s, everyone knew that Christians were not part of the Jews. That had been cleared away by now. But here, the implication is, is that the Jews are the ones telling the officials, they're not part of us. Which I think is one of the marks, could be a possible mark for the fact of the early date of when this was written. Did you know that the same thing is happening around the world today in Christian churches? Have you been keeping up with the Anglican Church? The Church of England? A great divide where they cannot have communion with one another because of doctrinal and ethical issues. And they're, they're, they say, we, we cannot do this. The same thing has happened in Methodism where uh, because, the, and here we're fortunate in that the, the countries from Africa and Asia, the churches from there, are holding the line against those churches from the Western culture who are wanting to give away the store, as it were, who are going apostate. And so that same deep, and there's lots of conflict back and forth. We've experienced a bit of that ourselves as we left a denomination that we thought was going the wrong way. Uh, now, we didn't have throw stones and stuff like that, nor did they to us, but we said, this is not, we can't stay there. We think that what's going on is wrong. And so, uh, uh, Jesus says, I know your situation in detail, including the blasphemy used against you. That is, the blasphemy in this case, denying who Jesus is and what he did. Now, the third mark, I said, is, uh, so let's put the third mark up there. Uh, there's always an evaluation and an exhortation given to each church. In each of these letters, you'll find an evaluation of who they are, where they are, and an exhortation of what they should or should not do, as the case may be. Uh, did you know or did you notice that in this letter to the church at Smyrna, Smyrna, there's not one single negative comment? Nothing at all. Uh, only one other church of these seven churches will have a similar experience where Jesus says nothing negative about them. That's the church at Philadelphia. But here, it's, this is the shortest of the letters, and there's nothing negative about the church at all in it, uh, period. Uh, in fact, what he does say uh, is that you are rich. That's his evaluation. 
you are rich. Even though on outward looking circumstances, you're poor, you're looked down on, you're ostracized, you are rich. Uh, isn't that a great commendation to us to remember? Uh, Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. He says, you know what you're doing, the witness you're bearing, the choices that you're making, the things that you're doing are rich in heaven. And he commends him, says, you may look poor, you may look all this, but you are rich. That's his evaluation. Uh, And then he has an exhortation for him. He says, do not fear what is about to happen to you. In fact, he says, what you're about to suffer. Uh, Now, this raises questions, does it not? How can God allow this? This is a church he has nothing negative about to to say about them at all. And yet he tells them, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer unjustly. Uh, Prayer won't change it? Don't think so. By the way, did they stop praying for escape and release? They did not. One of the things that we do all the time, I don't know about you, but what you should do, uh, I've asked you to pray for my friend Ed Fisher. I pray God will heal him. God healed him 25 years ago. Now, whether he will or not this time, we don't know. But we're praying that he will. Uh, Sometimes we pray for for people to uh, get out of difficult circumstances, and uh, it doesn't happen. It gets worse. Well, we pray for that, but, but it's God. We always say, above all else, what he says here, above all else, you know, you can pray for release, pray for escape, all those, but pray that you will be faithful, that you will not value health or position or job or something so much that for those things, you would deny the faith. Be faithful. Uh, it says here that you're going to suffer for 10 days. Already at small group, we had someone ask, well, what do the 10 days mean? It means 10 days. Okay. Uh, it doesn't mean 10 years. It doesn't mean this. What it does mean is that there's a specific point in time where this is going to happen to you. Jesus says, we see this, it's going to happen. And it's not going to last forever. It's one thing it says. It's 10 days, but by the 12th days, it's over. Some will be dead and some will go somewhere else. But 10 days is when this is going to happen. Now, I think it's worthwhile for us to remember that same sort of thing. Uh, All of what the Lord gives us in terms of difficulties and sufferings, that won't last forever. You know, there will come a point in time when I speak slowly and clearly. Hallelujah. Don't you wish it would come soon? Well, it'll be in heaven, so don't wish for it too soon, all right? I'm trying. But... uh, You know, there's some things that we just bear with, but we know that those things don't last forever, okay? We continue to pray that God will heal, will help, will deliver us, but we, above all else, want to be faithful. And that's the very thing he exhorts them to. So that's his exhortation. He says, be faithful until death. Oh my, what a good exhortation for us. Uh, Think of Naboth. In 1 Kings 21 that we read this morning, he knew he had the inheritance from his fathers. He says, I can't give this away, no matter what. And he was faithful to that, even though Ahab had him killed. He didn't do that. Uh, 
the Smyrna church is going to take this exhortation to heart and be faithful. And they'll produce many martyrs. The most famous one came about 90 years later, their bishop Polycarp, which means much fruit. Polycarp means much fruit. Uh, I want to read a little bit. I have this little book here that tells about, there's a, one of the, the earliest accounts we have of uh, martyrdom is this one. It says, the church of God that sojourns at Smyrna to the church of God that sojourns at Philomelium. It says, we write to you, brethren, the things concerning those who suffered martyrdom, especially the blessed Polycarp. Uh, so they're going to write a whole letter here telling about what happened. And uh, it says, uh, while he was praying one day, Polycarp, it so happened that three days before his arrest that he had a vision, and he saw his pillow blazing with fire, and turning to those who were with him, he said, I must be burned alive. Uh, then late on the evening, when they, he actually going to get arrested three days later, late on the evening when they came up with him, they found him in a bed in the upper room in a small cottage. Even so, he could have escaped to another farm, but he did not wish to do so, saying, God's will be done. So he said, you know, I could escape, but I don't want to. The Lord has shown me something, and there's a, a road I need to take. So he gets arrested, uh, and he, he brought into a big coliseum, and the, the governor's there, and it's all filled with people. It's a big, huge thing, and, and uh, the governor says to him, uh, when he had brought... Polycarp before him, the proconsul asked him if he really were Polycarp. And when he confessed that he was, the governor tried to uh, persuade him to deny the faith, saying, have respect for your age. And other things that are customarily followed, this such as, swear by the fortune of Caesar, change your mind, say, away with the heathens. But Polycarp, looking with earnest face at the whole crowd of the lawless heathen in the arena, motioned to them with his hand, then groaning and looking up to heaven, he said, away with the atheists. He says, there's the atheists. They don't believe in the one true real God. There are the atheists. Away with the atheists. But the proconsul was insistent and said, take the oath and I shall release you. Curse Christ. Polycarp said, 86 years I have served him and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Notice the language that's used. Again, ruling an authority. You know, I'm, I'm submitted to my king. And upon his persisting still and saying, swear by the fortune of Caesar, Polycarp answered, if you vainly suppose that I shall swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you say, and pretend that you do not know who I am, listen plainly. I am a Christian. But if you desire to learn the teaching of Christianity, appoint a day and give me a hearing. The proconsul said, trying to persuade the people. But Polycarp said, you, I should deem worthy of an account, for we have been taught to render honor as is befitting to rulers and authorities, appointed by God, so far as it does no harm. But as for these, I do not consider them worthy that I should make a defense to them. The proconsul said, I have wild beasts, I shall throw you to them, if you do not change your mind. But Polycarp said, call them, for repentance from the better to the worse is not permitted us. But it is a noble to change, it is noble to change from what is evil to what is righteous. Again, the proconsul said to him, I shall have you consumed with fire if you despise the wild beasts unless you change your mind. But Polycarp said, the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. Think of 10 days, right? Burns for a while, but then is quenched. For you do not know the fire of the coming judgment and everlasting punishment that is laid up for the impious. 
Why do you delay? Come, do what you will. So the proconsul was astonished and sent his own herald into the midst of the arena to proclaim three times, Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian. And then they decided with, sh with a shout of one accord, he shall be burned alive. Burn Polycarp alive. And so they prepare the, the, the wood there, they're going to have a pole, they're going to nail him to it. It says, when they were about to nail him to the cross, or to the, to the wood, he said, leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved, without the security you desire from the nails. What time? Oh, I'm already past time. Uh, the, the point is, is that he, he has a prayer here that he prays, and uh, they First, they, they light the fire, and it goes out. He says, light it more, and they get some stuff on it, and they light, and poof, up he goes. And Polycarp is burned alive at the stake. The bishop of Smyrna, who was faithful to death, even as Jesus had counseled almost 100 years earlier. The day on which this occurred was February the 23rd in the year 155. So Polycarp is an example of that. Uh, you know, the same sort of thing is happening around the world today. Uh, when I was in... Hungary and Romania back in 1991, I talked to people who had uh, friends who had that happen. I had talked to a, a pastor who had had surgery on his stomach without anesthesia by the communists because he wouldn't uh, renounce Christ. Uh, you can read it if you have the right sites. Uh, over Nigeria, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, on a Sunday, the pastor came out from church and he was shot in the head. A couple of his kids were shot as well. Uh, you hear about things in China, all against the church, India and Pakistan. Uh, in the Middle East, uh, these things happen. And uh, people, Christians, need to be faithful in the midst of that. So, the fourth things that, that we have here is that he always says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Right? Here we go. He who has an ear, let him hear. Uh, and then it's the promises to the one who overcomes. That's the fifth thing. Go ahead, put it right up here with that. It'll come. He who has an ear, let him hear. And then the promises for the ones who overcome. And the promise is this, the crown of life. That's been stated already. This is for true believers, the crown of life. And eternal life is the crown. We all get that. Those who are Christians, everyone will have life, eternal life. That's the crown that testifies who you are and what, you, what you've been done. And the Spirit says the churches need to hear this. And it says, we keep on coming. There's another slide. Let's see what this will get caught up here. Uh, the crown of life. And then he, he says there's something else. Uh, you will not be hurt by the second death. That's the promise. You will not be hurt by the second death. Well, what's the second death? Back in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, it's told. Here's what it says. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That is eternal hell. Uh, that's the second death. You don't want. To, you will not go there. You'll escape that. Hence, no fear. Well, I'm already beyond time, and so I'm going to stop here. I have some more things to go on to, but uh, that I wanted to have us think about. But uh, you know, we need to know that God made all that is. He's the Almighty God, the Father. That there's there's nothing in the world that exists apart from Him, and He He orders all that by His good will. He's working that all out. And so we can be confident of his providence toward us. He, he, he's concerned for his people, and he has determined that not a hair fall from our head, not a thing happen to us outside his will. 
That's why we can always respond uh, to the things that happen to us while there's sorrow and there's limiting with hope, with confidence, with comfort that God has his purpose here for us. And so we learn that in the midst of, of all kinds of blessing to be grateful because it comes from his hand. We learn in the midst of all kinds of tribulation to be patient. That it's for 10 days or however long it may be. It's for 10 days. It may be 10 years, but it's not forever. It's not eternal. It's only for a bit. And we know that we can trust him. We trust him with all that he has for us, knowing that he is good. He's our almighty God and our everlasting father. May it be so. May we hear this good word to the Smyrnans, take it to our hearts, and be faithful in the places where he's put us. Amen.